I do bring you warm greetings from the congregation of uh, Christ OPC. It is a delight to be with you today. Let us turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 3. And our text is the first ten verses. Let us give our reverent attention to this God's inerrant, infallible, and holy word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him, walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word abides forever. You may be seated. There is a tale of two temples in the book of Acts. One of those temples is ruled by the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes and elders. This has shown itself to be a house of corruption. Just a few months earlier, Jesus had come into the Jerusalem temple and overthrown the tables of the money changers as they turned the house of God, into a place of buying and selling. And Jesus judged that house as nothing less than a den of robbers. But there's another temple in the midst of this one. If you look at the end of chapter 2, where it speaks of the disciples, the believers, and the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have faith in the Son of God, It says there in verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That is the true temple where the true worship and praise of God is found in those who receive with faith the risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is God going to have those in the corrupt temple, those in the darkened temple, how is he going to have those in the courts of the temple of Jerusalem hear the good news of salvation? He's going to do it through very surprising means. By sending 
this man who had been lame from birth to raise him up, and then as he is raised up, to be a sign that Jesus is raised, and he is calling everyone, including the chief priests, including the elders, everyone, including those in Jerusalem, to repent and believe in the gospel. This is the miracle that we witness this morning. Three points as we work through this passage. Firstly, the man at the gates. Secondly, the word of strong healing. And finally, the response of joy. Well, firstly, the man at the gates. Luke, the author of Acts, emphasizes the location of this wonder and this miracle. Did you notice where it was? Verse 2, the beautiful gate. And then verse 10, they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now, if it's a grand house, it's almost sure to have wondrous doors to match. And that is the case here with the temple that Herod built. It has some of the most gorgeous and awe-inspiring gates in all of the known world. The Jewish historian Josephus records the characteristics of what is probably the beautiful gate where he writes, It towered about 75 feet high and made of Corinthian bronze and of such exquisite workmanship that it far exceeded in value those gates that were plated with silver and gold. Just imagine being there at sunrise, seeing the gleaming of the light off of these bronze gates, the brilliance, the beauty, the magnificence of these doors. Now, think of the contrast between this large and magnificent edifice and this man who is crippled, lame from birth, sitting at those gates, asking for alms. There is a juxtaposition here, isn't there? A contrast between, on the one hand, these beautiful gates and this man with his helplessness and great poverty. I would surmise that there would be many sightseer types who came to the temple, just like the disciples had taken a tour around this house and they said to Jesus, Look at all these beautiful walls and doors and gates. But they didn't pay any mind, any attention to this man who was sitting there asking for help. Now, why is this man here? On the one hand, from a practical perspective, he wants to put himself in a crowded place where there is more opportunity to have people give alms. Deuteronomy 15.11 tells us, There will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Worshippers were to be generous, remembering that God had remembered them in their poverty. But the other reason why this man was outside rather than inside the temple is that he is forbidden from entering the house of God. 
Listen to the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, verse 18, where we read, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame. No one could come into the tabernacle or temple who was in such a condition as this man. We could say, no, not one. For not only did the sacrifice that was brought have to be without blemish, it had to be spotless and whole. The one bringing it also had to be whole as well, without defect, without deformity or disability. There is this picture of the full-orbed purity and integrity that it takes to approach God in his holiness. Later on, we read that this man was about 40 years old. Think about this. Even at a young age, his parents, when they came to the temple, would have to leave him at the gates as they themselves went in to offer their sacrifices, as they themselves went in to hear the law of God taught. This man is then ostracized, alienated from the presence of God and the place where his glory dwells. And in this condition, and this is significant, the temple and its priests could not help him. There was no remedy for him in his predicament, in his situation that this institution could offer. What is he doing? He is sitting outside, simply trying to survive. The only thing he can really do is sit and beg for help from others. Now what is about to happen for this man? Luke focuses the lens of the camera on him to get near to him that we might see God's power demonstrated. As he sees Peter and John pass by, what is he expecting from them? A little something to get by on. A little money to alleviate his need and lighten his load. And when Peter says, gold and silver, I have not, he perhaps has a deflated sense of disappointment. I thought he was going to pull some serious denarii out of his cloak and put it in my hand. But the apostle has something much greater, far surpassing than what money can purchase. And the point as an apostle that Peter is making is that's not the kind of wealth, money is not the kind of wealth that he has to share. Rather, Peter is going to be moved to do something so beyond this man's expectation and imagination that it's going to overshadow everything this man has received up to this point in his life. Secondly, then, we see the word of strong healing. 
verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. This man is obedient to this first command. But there is a second command that Peter gives, doesn't he? And that is, rise up and walk. There's a great prayer of Augustine who wrote, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And here's one of the best examples of that in the New Testament. This man is commanded to walk, but he himself does not have the ability and the resources by which he can walk. And yet he is enabled to do so as Peter reaches down and lifts him up and says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I say, rise up and walk. As the lame man hears the name of Jesus, as he feels the hand of Peter, he exercises faith in the Lord Jesus. Later on, notice in verse 16, Peter will explain, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What's in a name? We don't know the name of this man here at the beginning of chapter 3. He almost certainly doesn't even know the names of Peter and John as they approach him. To him, there are simply two Galileans who are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. But one name is brought to the forefront in this narrative, in this account. And that is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Notice again verse 16. And his name, namely the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. The healing of this man. The ability by which he is made to rise up and walk, and not only that, to leap for joy, is given by none other than the risen Savior, the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. Once again, we are brought from the sign to where the sign is directed and pointing to the reality of the miracle of miracles, God's greatest intervention, God's greatest reversal in raising his son from the dead. That is the thing to which all other miracles and signs are pointing. I've heard it said that miracles are like God's headlines. They are to grab our attention. They are to be a living demonstration, undeniable proof that God has come. And he has stretched out his mighty hand and his arm of salvation. The name of Jesus. 
as Peter will later say in chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There was this king of Denmark named Newt about a thousand years ago. He was a rather godly king and began to be fed up with the flattery of those in his court. And so what he did was he took his throne to the shore of the sea and he brought his servants with him and he commanded the waves not to touch his feet. But as the waves came and they saturated his feet, he shouted, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey. And then he hung his gold crown on a stick and never wore it again. We could say, in a sense, that's the point of this miracle. Peter does not take credit for it. He does not end up saying, look at us, but look to Christ. For God, through Christ, is the one who has brought this transformation and has brought this restoration. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6. And this is a very important passage relative to this text. We read there, Your God will come. Your God will arrive. He will visit you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And listen to this. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is that. What you are seeing in Acts 3 is the realization, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 35. Your God will come. God has come in the flesh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, there's a new day dawning. A day of the new creation. A day of healing and of life. The power that it takes to raise this man, it only comes from the power of the one who has been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Luke, it seems, is matching up Peter's actions with that of Jesus in Luke chapter 5. One of Jesus' first public healings was also causing a paralytic, a lame man, to walk. And if you were there on that occasion, you would have never forgotten it because the house was so crowded with those who were listening to Jesus teach that the people who brought this man on a bed 
had to climb up on the roof, dig through the roof, and lower this man on the floor before Jesus. And on that occasion, do you remember that as he is put there in front of Jesus, what our Lord tells him? He turns to him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, his friends were listening above, and the man himself would have probably at first said, well, that's not exactly why I came here. But you know what? Jesus is giving that man what he really needed. His true need, before anything else, was to be forgiven and to have his sins blotted out. And friends, that's our need before anything else. Whatever it is you think you would like to have, like to experience, before anything else, we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be pardoned, justified, and brought near to him. What kind of authority and power is required to forgive sins? Jesus then says, so that you may know I have authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, the power that enables one to open blind eyes, loosen stuck tongues, and make the lame leap like a deer. The power that is demonstrated here in Acts 3 the power of the Savior who is making all things new through his death and resurrection. Sin is no surface matter, is it? When you consider the gravity of sin in light of God's word, you realize that sin is a top-to-bottom reality in terms of who we are. Whereas God desires truth in the inmost parts, when we look inside, we see nothing but corruption, bentness, and deceit. We are, in the deepest places, stained with guilt. And we understand we fall short of the glory of God. Only the power of the blood of Christ Can God reach us in those innermost places to sprinkle our hearts clean from an evil conscience to wash our bodies with pure water? You see, the reason for comfort this day for us is that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. As one of our forefathers put it, There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. We receive the overflowing mercy of the Lord, which has neither brim nor bottom. And so the promise comes to us, as we see Peter later on exposit this, when he tells those who hear in the temple in verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn again. Why? 
that your sins may be blotted out, separated from you as far as the east is from the west. There is the man at the gates, there is the word of strong healing, but finally, we see the response of joy. We see the response of the people as they witness this miracle in verse 10. It says, They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Just as those who saw Jesus and his signs and miracles were filled with awe and wonder. This man had just earlier that day been sitting at the gate asking for gifts. But now they find him walking merrily by the side of Peter and John. How did this occur? How could this take place? They're going to seek an explanation. But for now, ponder the man's movements in verse 8. It turns out that his movement will exhibit the glory of God in even a greater way than the beautiful gates of the temple. That here is a man who becomes a living epistle, a living exhibition of the resurrection power of Christ. As he is healed, as his ankles and feet are made strong, what does he do? He leaps for joy. And he doesn't say, yippee hi but instead, hallelujah. There are examples of those who are healed, but who subsequently go on their own way. But there are some who do not. We can think of blind Bartimaeus. When he is healed, when his eyes are opened, do you remember what he does? He follows Jesus into Jerusalem. He follows him on the way. And likewise with this man, notice what he does. He entered the temple, verse 8, with them, with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. He uses his newfound strength to follow the apostles into the worship of the Lord into the courts of the living God. Healing and wholeness, what is it for? The purpose of glorifying and enjoying God. You know, there's a huge market out there for wellness. Wellness retreats, wellness calendars. And the subtext of all this is be well, for your own self, for your own sake and pleasure. But is that it? Is salvation and restoration for us, does it come to leave us further curved in on ourselves? Not at all. Salvation comes for this man, deliverance comes for this man, not so that he can make much of himself, but in order that he might give thanks to the Lord and praise his name. That's what it's like for those who are forgiven. We understand that it's for a purpose. It's for the goal of 
boasting in the Lord. What shall we render to the Lord for all the benefits he has shown to us? We lift up the cup of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Why has God given you new life? Why has he raised you with Christ, made you alive together with his Son? It is order in order that you might give to the Lord the sacrifices of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Yes, it's in order that you yourself would be that living sacrifice, acceptable, pleasing to the Lord. I ask you, believer, is this your vocation? To praise the Lord. You are my God, the psalmist says, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Some of you are going through heavy times, times of great trial. You have suffered loss, and it's weighing heavy upon you. Others may be facing massive uncertainty when it comes to your presence or your future. Some might be wrestling with doubt. Is it worth it to follow Christ? In these times, what are you called to do? What is the Spirit summoning you to do this very day? It is like this man to turn in faith to the Lord. To remember God's overflowing love and grace for you. Should this not all draw up from you in your spirit the heart and praise of the Lord? I bet you if you interviewed this man many years, even decades later, he would be able to recount exactly what took place. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I was able to walk our response to the name of Jesus ought to be like that of this man who leapt and was praising God. To know his name, to have faith in Christ, should lead us to have overwhelming and joy inexpressible. Let us pray. Lord, grant us that we would remember the mercies you have shown to us. Grant us, O Lord, that we would have that assurance of your love and the peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, and perseverance therein to the end. In Christ's name, amen.